You're listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 52, Hacking Your Reward System. In our episode on control, we talked about all the different systems in your mind that contribute to what you do at any moment, including the cognitive system, the mind-wandering system, and the habit system. Today, we're going to go a little deeper into the reward system. Just to review a bit from that episode, the reward system is concerned with pains, pleasures, and desires. An especially important distinction is between liking and wanting. Now, liking involves positive feelings like pleasure and happiness, and wanting is more of a drive to do something, and it might or might not be accompanied by pleasure. And addictive behaviors are like this. And as addiction Mm -hmm. sets in, people report liking the behavior, or in most cases, the drug less, but in fact, they want it more. So uh, in our previous episode, it was more about what's going on in your head, you know, sort of the neural circuits as well. But let's talk today about some practical tips. And I know you like this, Jim, how you can use an accurate understanding of your own reward system to help become more like the person you want to be. And how to manipulate other people's reward systems? No, Jim, no. We're going to stick to (laughs) 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 self-improvement. Maybe we can have a future episode about how to manipulate other people. (laughs) And maybe not. (laughs) Okay, fine. I'll drop it for now. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, reward systems are obviously quite common in the animal kingdom. Uh, Creatures evolve to approach things or objects or even places that would enhance survival. And making contact with these so-called stimuli led to a reward response. And when our ancestors approached things that threatened their survival, it led to the fear response. And obviously not activating the reward system in the same way. So another way of putting this is the reward circuit is activated both in approach and avoidance situations and dopamine is released in both cases, but it's just not the same pattern of activation uh, as with highly rewarding events. So stress is very different than reward. Yeah, so some of the reward responses that we have are evolved. Yeah, sure. For like a good example is food, uh, being in the right temperature, for example, being free of pain, sex, caring for offspring. These things are often rewarding without having to be learned. And this is why we call them primary rewards as opposed to secondary rewards that are learned. Okay, so kids like sugar and we don't have to train we don't have to train our kids to like sugar. That's right. I mean, and, and Kent Barrage does beautiful work where he drops sugar solutions on the tongues of hours-old infants and sees that they show this very distinct um, response with their mouths, indicating that they like uh, sugary solutions. And you can do that with rats and monkeys, and they'll do the same um, sequence of events. But like with kids, back to yeah. our example, we do try to train them to like vegetables. Right. Vegetables aren't intrinsically rewarding? Shockingly, no. Well, if you're hungry, they are. Uh, I mean, they are nutritious, right? Uh, Such as sugar. Sugar also has nutrients and calories. Um, But, and, you know, vegetables are obviously more rewarding than, let's say, eating rocks. But highly caloric (laughs) foods uh, were actually quite rare in ancestral times, right? So what we think or scientists think happened is that we developed extra reward uh, or an extra response in the brain uh, for the rarer stuff. So things like meat, uh, highly protein, uh, high protein content foods, fats, sugar, and salt. 
Right. And those things are actually nutritious, but just not in the quantities available to us today. Correct. And we should also put in a bit of nuance here because it's not that eating food is always rewarding. I'm sure we can all think about some circumstances, right? Yeah. So I like for me and donuts, I, I love donuts. So if I see or taste a donut, it's pleasurable and rewarding. But after I've eaten three donuts, then the sight or taste of the donut has a very different effect. You know, it might be neutral. And if I have five donuts, then I'm going to get disgusted by the taste of her side of a donut. How sad. P.S. Susie Q Donuts, super great donuts. If anybody wants to sponsor Mining the Brain. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> can, you, can you imagine we get, we get free donuts because we sponsor Susie oh, Q? Oh my God, I would love that. Uh, maple bacon donut. <laughs> anyway, back to uh, uh, the concept of the fact that you can actually get a disgust response. Yes, if you get overfull, um, it's not the stimulus itself necessarily that's rewarding or not, but it's the match between the stimulus mm-hmm. and some motivational state of the organism. And that's known as, in psychology, appraisal theory. Okay, so uh, changing track a little bit, I want to talk about how the reward system, it evolved for certain things, but it can be tricked by, by, by signals. Yeah, uh, and and this is sort of fascinating to me. I'm intrigued to have this conversation with you because um, I certainly haven't looked at uh, tricking the reward system before. But for sure, animals have evolved to have, or animals evolved to have rewards that are primary, as I indicated earlier. They don't have to learn about them to know it's going to be good for us, right? So having sex or eating tasty food, we we don't have to learn about this association. Right. But the important thing is our perceptual systems don't have direct access to what's out there in the world, and they rely instead on signals from the environment that reliably indicate the presence of that good thing. Uh, What do you mean by that? Well, we get information about the world via our senses, right? Our eyes, our ears, you know, seeing, hearing. Um, And some things, like whether somebody is trustworthy, it's not directly perceivable, right? It's like we can't tell based on sight, for example. So we use other signals that indicate it. And it's the same thing with tasting sweetness uh, as a signal for sugar. Oh, okay. I see where you're going with this. Mm -hmm. So we have a need for sugar, but we can't directly measure sugar content in the world. So we have a taste sensation of sweetness, which often occurs in the presence of sugar in the food that we eat. Correct. Yes. So fruit is has sugars, right? And we've evolved to detect that sugar as sweetness and to find that rewarding. And in other animals, for example, they also have like visual cues are very important, right? Like fruits Mm -hmm. tend to have like they're they're more red and orange. They're in that uh, range of the color spectrum. Anyway, but at the chemical level, the trigger for sweetness um, and the taste of it is, is a matter of matching some chemicals in the mouth to receptors on the tongue. And not every chemical that triggers these receptors, believe it or not, is actually sugar. Yeah, we discovered chemicals like saccharin and uh, aspartame, uh, which trigger our sweetness detectors without the presence of sugar. Exactly. And these are, it's been used in like lower calorie diets or they're the artificial sweeteners, for example, right? You can get them little mm-hmm. sugar packets. And that's tricking the reward system. Um, sugar is now too plentiful in our environment. So we have a market for getting the pleasure of sugar without the sugar uh, in the form of these um, artificial sweeteners. And I should mention, by the way, my colleague, uh, Dr. Melissa Chi in the Department of Neuroscience does really cool work uh, looking at how different sugars, and in this case, she's looking at things like fructose, how, how fructose activates the parts of our brain responsible for determining hunger and satiety. And she sees some really interesting things. So maybe I'll invite her for a future episode. Sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, well, let's talk about some rewards for bigger stuff. 
stuff. So um, I'm thinking about working hard on something. So when you work hard on something and then you finally accomplishment, you get a rush of satisfaction. You get a great feeling. Like suppose you're on a long, difficult run. This is something Kim might relate to. Mm -hmm. And when you finish it, you feel proud and happy mm -hmm. because of your accomplishment. And we can see how this, this feeling, this positive feeling of accomplishment mm -hmm. makes us strive for things, right? So we anticipate reward when we complete doing something that in the short term might not be pleasurable, right? It, it, you do something difficult in the expectation of a reward later. Yeah, so running is obviously good for you. Uh, so this is great. Like your reward system is working as it should. Um, and it's, we know there's good evidence that shows that um, in marathon runners, I think they've done these experiments that they've looked at their brain and the of things like endorphins as well as endocannabinoids. And they see these increases in these signals in the brain after um, a certain amount of aerobic exercise. So the reward system right. is pumping it out. Um, yeah, uh, that's. I wonder if that's the same thing, though, I, because mm. that that'll happen. Um, I, that's not the. That's not those endorphins and endocannabinoids aren't from pride of accomplishment, though, are they? Correct. That's true. That's yeah. True. That's sort of like a, yeah. um, a side effect of of just exercising, which is great. I mean, it makes <laughs> it makes exercise, Fair. you know, uh, really good. Um, but even these endorphins and endocannabinoids, in a way, they're they're a system that can be hacked. They can be tricked, mm. right? So I I think video games are a great example of this. So in many games. You're playing a character in a complex story and, you know, you're, you're trying to complete lots of difficult obstacles. And, and studies of gamers show that most of the time, more often than not, they're actually failing at what they're trying to do in the game. They're trying again and again and repeated failure. Uh, and, you know, they eventually overcome whatever difficulty they're facing. Um, at the same time, these games are designed to be optimally rewarding, right? So they are, they are play tested and they use user studies to to make sure that they are optimally compelling, which means that the optimal level of compellingness does involve some failure, which is interesting. Mm. Um, and that's why people play them for hours and hours. Um, and, and interestingly, lots of people play games at work like they should be working, but they're playing video games at work. And many of them, when you ask them why, they say so they can feel more productive. <laughs> We okay, interesting. So it's kind of like aspartame. The game is triggering this sense of accomplishment when you're not actually accomplishing anything. Yes, or yes. anything, or well, accomplishing anything important in the real world. Anyway, please don't shout out at me, gamers. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a good point though because it, it's fun, right? So mm. it's, we don't yeah, want to yeah. say it's a complete waste of time. Like yeah, having yeah. fun is not a complete waste of time, right? Um, yes. You know. People who regularly play games, you know, they often they also get other benefits. You know, they can have more resilience in the face of difficulty in the real world. You know, it, it, it might be that resilient people are more attracted to games like this, but also could be that um, playing these games kind of gives you a feeling of confidence for the real world, an idea that difficulties are ultimately surmountable if you keep trying, right? So it might... It might encourage grit because mm. the, the world of a video game is a really nice world where things are solvable. <laughs> you can solve your problems if you keep trying. But aside from the practice and the raw pleasure, uh, you're not really helping yourself or the world by solving the video game. So, yeah. So, don't they gamify learning to make playing games more educational and to make education more engaging? Yes, yes. So, the, these reward tricks, right, they can be applied to productivity and education. Khan Academy is a really good app for this. It's a... Uh, it incorporates like awards and badges and little sounds like like when you do something right, you know, and, and it really it feels it makes it feel like you're you're learning math, but it feels Yay. more like you're playing a game, you know, and that's for education. But there are also um, serious games that are out there to help science. For example, there's a game that's like a puzzle game uh, you can download. Uh, it's played like a puzzle game, but it actually helps scientists figure out how proteins fold. It's called Fold It. 
<laughs> wow. So that's one way to hack your reward system. You put yourself in an environment where you get rewarded for doing things that are either, I guess in this case, it's <laughs> uh, in the case of the game Fold It, uh, it's good for the world, right? Or obviously right. other situations that are good for you. It makes me wonder how, uh, like, could we manipulate this to solve some of the bigger issues of the world, such as climate change or poverty or something, right? Yeah, yeah. And they... There are serious games out there that are trying to raise awareness and this and that. So it's an interesting field. Mm. Um, but uh, I want to talk to you about recreational drugs, too, because uh, this is a philosophy or like a, an approach to them that I've read. One way to look at them is that it's in terms of tricking your reward system. Mm. So just like you have detectors in your tongue that were honed by evolution to trigger in the presence of sugar, you also have higher level detectors in your head for accomplishments. And the idea is that the drugs, these like drugs that make you high, they trick these detectors uh, into a feeling of accomplishment, kind of like aspart aspartame tricks your sugar detectors. So the pleasure you normally have to get by doing something great, um, you know, you can do it with drugs without accomplishing anything at all. And this might be an explanation for why some say regular use of some drugs can sap your ambition, because you get a reward you'd normally get from accomplishing an ambitious goal, but all you got to do is take the drugs to get it. Yeah, it's interesting because you've, you've brought in the, the term accomplishment here, right? So I guess it is disambiguating primary from secondary rewards because, yes, yeah, secondary rewards, you, you need to do something in order to get that reward. Drugs are considered a uh, secondary reward, right? They're not natural, but it is definitely the case like you're, you're, you're saying the right terminology in the addiction field, we think drugs, the thinking is that drugs trick or hijack the reward system because drugs that have an addiction, addictive potential are chemicals or proteins that the brain recognizes in terms of its shape, right? So all mm. proteins have a specific shape. The key chemicals of the brain, the neurotransmitters have a shape and they bind to a receptor, which is like a lock and a key. And so things like cannabis and cocaine have shapes that um, resemble another protein in the brain. So, for example, a receptor, and it binds the drug and activates the reward system. And interestingly, sidebar, most addictive substances do have their origins in plants. And we know humans have ingested plants for medicinal purposes for millennia. And the problem is that modern humans have altered the plants so much that they're now extremely potent. So a good example is, you know, the cocaine comes from the coca leaf, uh, which is a native plant to areas um, in South America, such as Peru, and it's been ingested by indigenous peoples uh, for, again, millennia to combat things like altitude sickness. Hmm. But then modern humans, you know, we've taken the cocaine leaf and we've mashed it up and we've added in chemicals and we've modified it to form a powder known as cocaine hydrochloride. And then we modified even further and removed the base, which is, you know, the term of freebasing or crack cocaine, which is even yet more potent. And then we smoke it, right, instead of snorting and so on and so forth. Anyway, these, these ways of tricking your reward system can obviously work for you or against you. Um, and they work for you if they can get you to consume less sugar. Um, but then just a sidebar, consuming saccharin products can actually contribute to obesity, but we'll save that for another episode. But more nuance. <laughs> more nuance, but they can work against you um, if you uh, use them like a cheat code to get pleasure if you didn't earn it, right? So Right. I, so yeah. I think that's what the reward is so, is so interesting. And like the world is already hacking your reward system. That's the way I look at it. It's like, if, you know, you need to understand this because 
there, the world, there are people. I mean, every time you see an attractive person in a magazine and think, oh, wow, that's pretty. I enjoy looking at that. That's tricking your reward system. Like, For that's sure. not a person. That's a piece of paper with ink on it. <laughs> and, and, and I would go even one step further. It's, been a, it's a face that's been modified through a series right, right, of right, software right. programs to look the most beautiful, right? No wrinkles, according to, you know, ageist and sexist and so on and so forth, racist views of beauty. Anyway, but yes, the world is hacking your reward right. system. So the, wor- the, wor- the world is already <laughs> hacking yeah. your reward system. So what we're suggesting is just grab grab it by the reins and hack it yourself. Like make sure go. that your reward system is in line with your, ref- you know, the goals that you have for your life uh, on reflection and not, mm-hmm. you know, necessarily the feeling of wanting to have a third piece of cake or something. So let's for talk, sure. let's talk a little bit more about reward. Um, in terms of learning. Mm, my favorite. Uh, Is it yes. your favorite? Oh, yes. Well, my whole PhD <laughs> and postdocs are about reward and learning. So, anyway. But, yeah. There's a long tradition of psychology of studying, you know, how we learn about rewarding events or aversive events. And that's uh, conditioning, right? And doing something that results in feeling good tends to make uh, the behaviors that preceded it more likely. You know, for example, studying for a test or going to a restaurant uh, where you have a tasty meal and doing something that leads to bad feelings or anxiety or stress or whatever makes the behaviors that preceded that even less likely, which makes us wonder, you know, stress is <laughs> also associated with studying and learning. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> yeah. So now for those psych heads out there who've, who've, uh, uh, who studied, um, <laughs> you might, I'm going to use the word punishment in the way that it, the behaviorists never would. Okay. Mm. The technical terms that the behaviorists who kind of discovered conditioning, uh, they, the way they use these words are a little unintuitive. So in this episode, I'm just going to rep- refer to unpleasant feelings that get caused by behaviors or stimulus as being punishment, even though that doesn't exactly match up with how behaviorists would use the term. Great qualifier, and I've never heard the term psychhead. But anyway, maybe <laughs> this is news to me. Am I a psychhead? Maybe. Anyway, your of mind. You are. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> fair, fair, fair. I mean, yes. So your mind is going to associate whatever you're doing or experiencing, let's you know, with punishment, which will make you want to avoid those situations or behaviors in the future. Now, if you're trying to hack your reward system, can you also use punishment in that way? Well, it seems like you would be able to take advantage of both reward and punishment, doesn't it? Right? So, mm-hmm. like, in experiments, you if you uh, make a rat, if you shock their feet every time they lift their nose, they're going to lift their nose less, right? It actually works. So, the idea is that if you do something you're not supposed to do or do something you don't really want to do, you get punished for it, you're going to be less likely to do it in the future. So, I mean, that much makes sense at a theoretical level. At a theoretical level, because... Right. You know, let's think about a real example. What if you're trying to quit smoking? You might do something like take a bite of a raw onion every time you smoke a cigarette. Like <laughs> right, yes, two, yes. Right, right. But, you know, we know from the addiction literature that doesn't work, right? I, I've got people, I know people who've done preclinical research and showing it doesn't matter if you um, shock a rat and it's taking substances compulsively, that's not going to deter it at all. Anyway, but any parent will know that punishment can work with interpersonal relationships, right? If your child misbehaves, you might put them in a timeout or take away something they really like for a while. And as to whether that actually changes behavior in the long term, I think that's still to be demonstrated, right? Yeah, yeah. But although they say reward is is a better way to modify behavior, it's not always possible to use it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think there's a very big difference between someone else applying the punishment and you punishing yourself. Someone else, like in this case, it's the parent, right? Applying the punishment. Yes, yes. So I read about a study in which they tried to motivate researchers to do more writing. Okay, so what they did was they had the, they had the, I read these, I read this stuff. (laughs) 
What they did was they had the professors write a check to a charity that they detested. <laughs> okay, so it might be like the NRA, who knows what. Like professors tend to be left wing. Mm. So the experimenter would took the he took the check and then he would check them on them every day. He would call them and say, "Have you done your writing?" And if they hadn't, he would send in the check with their name on it. It's <laughs> <laughs> actually hilarious and it sounds yes. somewhat motivating, right? It is very motivating. Yeah. It was mm-hmm. and um and other people, they'll put a rubber band around the wrist and snap themselves to punish themselves when they engage in some behavior that they want to eliminate. <laughs> you know, I, I do know somebody who did this, right? They, oh no, you know what they did? They snapped their elastic band. They were trying to not think about a boy that they had just. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And they had just, um, their relationship had ended and they were just snapping themselves on the wrist every time they thought about the boy. Anyway. And then somebody else I know, uh, made themselves do 15 push ups every time they had a uh, craving for nicotine or smoking. Yeah. And, yeah. I'm starting to see why this may not work so well. Right. So in the, lo- yeah, what, what tends to happen is that in the long, in the long run, you just stop punishing yourself. Mm. You know, you just, you just don't snap it. <laughs> you, just, you don't do the push-ups. You do fewer push-ups because the very act of punishing yourself is punished every time you do it. I mean, the whole, like, <laughs> oh, right. You, <laughs> right. So it, the point right. of doing, the point of the, the activity that you're, that the, the punishment is to be unpleasant. And so every time you do it, it's unpleasant. And so it is punished. Right. So many people sooner or later, sooner or later, they just stop snapping the rubber band. It's this reason I don't think punishing yourself is particularly good as a long-term strategy. Now, but it might work if you can get someone else to punish you. Okay. So kind of like, um, uh, that researcher Boyce did about sending in the check. You know, you don't send in the check. He mm. sends in the check, right? Mm. But then you're going to have to either pay somebody to do it or you're going to get a friend to do it. Yeah, well, having a friend <laughs> punish you isn't a nice way to maintain a friendship. Exactly. Right. You're punishing time with your friend. Yeah. So that, you know, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. that's very true. So reward works better, right? Yeah. I'll give you an example from my life. So one time I was playing too much of this video game. I was really hooked on this video game. I'm not going to mention it because I don't want anybody else to get hooked on it. But I was I was taking up, it was taking up too much of my time. So I made this commitment to myself. I would only play the video game that day if I'd exercised that day. And did it work? It, you know, it really did. But it turns out I loved the game so much that I exercised every day for over a week just so I could play it. Now, th- this is, so it worked in the sense that it did reduce the amount of gaming I did. Mm. Uh, but I also, but it, but also, you know, I played the game, but I also got a lot of exercise, which is great. And what exactly were you doing for exercise, out of curiosity? Of course, you'd ask that. So anyway, mm. there's a funny there's a funny story about this. Mm. Um, so I was, I was talking to a friend and told him about what I was doing. And, and I said, so, you know, if I take the stairs at work, then I exercise. And he sort of said something like, well, it depends on what you define as exercise. <laughs> and, and I countered with, well, I work on the 22nd floor. <laughs> He's like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. For anyone that doesn't work at Carlton, Jim... Uh, Jim's office is in Dunton Tower. And I think for me, I think the my record is maybe five floors that I've walked up. Are and you kidding? Guess, well, no, I mean, I, y- yes. Well, I, you wear heels too. I do. And <laughs> <laughs> I actually don't like walking upstairs as a form of exercise. Oh, okay. Mm, okay. Yeah, yeah. I'd much yeah. rather go for a half hour run. So there you go. Yeah, uh, fair enough. So letting yourself, now letting yourself have something special, you know, if you behave in the way that you want to, that's a common way to do it. Well, don't you get the same problem you would get with punishment, though? 
Oh, you mean you like you just ignore your commitment to reward yourself? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that could happen. For some reason, it seems to be easier to do it this way. So ideally, um, ideally, you, you you do this for long enough. You set up habits when we have a whole episode on habits. Um, and then you don't need to use your willpower anymore. You don't need to right. bother with the reward and punishment. You're just in a habit. Yeah, it's really, it's automated, right? And what would be really great is if you could learn to find rewarding something you initially found unpleasant. Right, through association or something. Yeah. Yeah, like you don't like a certain food or something or and you Yeah. You know, I don't know. So anyway, right. So I know now Kim is one of those freaks who actually likes exercise. Uh, she she admitted she actually admitted and this is on the podcast so there's proof. She actually admitted to liking doing burpees in a previous episode. <laughs> I love how you, <laughs> you're like, she admitted this. Like, it's like evidence. Not Okay, not only did she admit it, but like, <laughs> she added it to what we were going to say because oh. I just assumed burpees were not fun. And she added like, no, no, I like, I like burpees. <laughs> well, okay. Do you honestly think that's freakish? What do you think? Anyway, Philip, many people, including yours truly, don't enjoy exercise and have to use tricks to get themselves to do it. Now, listening to music while you exercise is a good example. And, and that's actually been proven to work in experiments. Yes, I've, I've, I've read this. Listening to music helps people exercise longer and harder, right? Right. So that's great. And uh, we also have a great podcast episode on exercise. Mm -hmm. um, but the question is this, right? Because we're asking about can we make something unpleasant pleasant through association? Does listening to music simply make the exercise more bearable, maybe by diverting your attention away from, you know, the stressor? Or does the association over time actually make you like the exercise all by itself? Right. Now, I would argue exercise isn't a great ex example necessarily because of what we discussed earlier. It releases endorphins and possibly endocannabinoids, which we know are signals that are involved in rewards. So, simply doing exercise mm -hmm. generates its own reward. Right? That's, that's a very good point. That's a good yeah, point. So yeah, maybe yeah. a better example, I don't know, engaging in some painful physiotherapy or something, another thing I've had experience with. Like, you know, it's you have to do these things and they're just very painful, right? Now, if you reward yourself for doing these exercises, uh, you end up associating the behavior with pleasure uh, you know, so strongly that you learn to love doing it without the initial reward. Will that work? And I don't know if you've ever seen anything different, but as far as my reading of the literature goes, I, I've not seen any evidence that this can happen. Like you never right. actually like. Right. You, you can't learn to like something bad by associating it with something good. Yeah, I think you're right. So let me rephrase this. Let's suppose a kid needs to get a, like an allergy shot or something every week yeah. and they don't like it. It hurts. Right. It's unpleasant. But if you take the kid out for ice cream after every shot to make it a more pleasant experience... Yeah, then, right. The kid yeah. might start to get excited about the whole process. Right. But they never like it so much that they, like, on their own volition, go and get allergy shots, right? Without the ice cream. Right. <laughs> that's that's my reading of literature. It sounds like you haven't seen anything to the contrary. No, I think you're right. I think there's, like, a whole body of work on this in psych. Like, some yeah. experimentalists in the 60s and 70s actually showed that this doesn't happen. But who knows? Yeah. Knowledge evolves. Anyway, I think this term... It's called, uh, to some extent, temptation bundling. I can't remember yeah. the, the person who brought, uh, developed that term. Anyway, it's used to describe things like this, right? So you take some kind of pleasurable activity, like listening to music or a podcast, like minding the brain. Uh, <laughs> so much pleasure. Right. And you, you, you do it at the same time. 
uh, as some unpleasurable activity, like doing your taxes. Or in my case, what I do is I listen to them while I'm doing the dishes. Yeah, right. And for many people, that's going to be exercises in that case, too. So mm. I read a study where they got people to listen to really good audiobooks on iPods. These are like real potboiler novels, you know? Mm. And they were only allowed to listen to the story while they were exercising. Uh, and in in real life, I have a friend with an exercise bike, and she only allows herself to watch TV if she's on the bike pedaling, mm. right? So, but two interesting things happened in this study. The people who were merely in, encouraged to listen to the audiobook when only when they were exercising, they didn't end up exercising any more than the control group who just was told to exercise. And more tellingly, uh, although the people who were not allowed, not allowed, they were prevented from listening mm. to the audiobook unless they were exercising. Um, they went to the gym more, but they didn't report liking exercise anymore. So it didn't really bleed over. Hmm. So the pleasure of the audiobook didn't end up getting transferred to the exercise. No, unfortunately. So temptation bundling makes unpleasant activities more bearable. And perhaps in the case of music, TV or audiobooks distracts you from whatever unpleasantness you're trying to endure. But it doesn't look like it changes the pleasantness of the basic activity. It is interesting that it's much easier to make yourself hate something that you like, right? Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah, I know, like, I can think about people, um, you know, if you've had, like, the stomach flu, and you're really nauseous, or you you eat something, you throw up, and then for a long period of time afterwards, you're so disgusted with that food, you can't eat it anymore, and arguably some people never eat it again, right? Yeah. It's the, the good old yeah. um, one-trial learning with some some people, right, Garcia? Yeah, and I, mm. I, I've, I've never talked to anybody who's actually done this or seen an experiment, but let, let's say that you're hooked on something like eclairs, mm. and you eat too many eclairs. Just wait till you have the stomach flu, then eat Eat a bunch of eclairs, throw up, and maybe you'll cure yourself of eating well, eclairs. My, yeah, that would be very like masochistic <laughs> of somebody. Right? No, but if you're, but but this is the thing. It's like your lower level versus your higher level goals. Like if, if the yeah, eating yeah. eclairs is really a problem, maybe you would want to get rid of your desire for it. You know. You know, it's it is a treatment for alcohol use disorder, kind of. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a drug called antabuse. Side note, I don't like the name. It's a bit stigmatizing. We don't say abuse when you talk about um, substances. Anyway, but that's my rant. Anyway, this is drug antabuse. Mm. Uh, and it makes you nauseous when you drink alcohol. So you quickly learn to associate the alcohol with the nausea and it can make you less likely to obviously want to drink. But I'm sure you can imagine the challenges associated with Antabuse and why it doesn't necessarily lead to abstinence. Oh, the person who the person has to want to take the drug, right? So you can imagine if um, if the desire to use alcohol is stronger than the desire to not use, then somebody will simply not take the antabuse, right? Anyway. Yeah, right, right, right. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, uh, that's an, you know it's a really interesting asymmetry. You know, you can it's easy to ruin something for you, <laughs> mm-hmm. but it's hard to get to like something you don't. Right now, although there are problems with punishment for use in self-improvement, there is a related concept that works better for many people. Making activities you want to engage in just more difficult to do. Like putting cookies on a high shelf or hiding exactly. them away. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So Google did research at their campuses. So Google measures everything, right? So they famously have free food for all their employees all over the place. And there's candy, right? But they're big into data, so they tracked the consumption. They like measured the number of M&Ms eaten, okay? And they mm-hmm. found they found that simply putting candy behind a glass door would significantly reduce candy. So the only difference was that employees had to open, physically open a cabinet? Yes. It's amazing. I know. And this is why some grocery stores uh, are reluctant to, cl- to put doors on their freezer. Hmm. It's a huge waste of energy if you think about it, right? So they're heating the grocery store so that it's warm enough for people to walk around it. But then inside the grocery store, they have a freezer with no doors that is fighting the heating. <laughs> oh my So goodness. this is like, it's a huge waste of energy, but 
But it is true that people are more likely to just grab something and put it in their cart if they don't have to work hard to do it. And simply opening a freezer door is enough to make a difference. You know, it's interesting because I, I always joke that I'm an opportunistic eater and I often find I will eat food if it's placed in front of me or if it's easily accessible. So, mm. you know, small personal story. I, I, I don't really have a lot of food cravings or issues with food. Um, and in fact, I could go hours without eating. It's concept of busy busy human to some extent but i find if i chop up vegetables and fruit and make food like easily accessible i'm more likely to open my fridge and just grab it and eat it so i'm kind of working that concept a little mm -hmm. bit in right in opposite right it's not like i'm trying not to eat unhealthy food if that makes sense i'm trying no to i know no eat, I yeah healthy food and it reminds me of that nudge movement yeah so the no? whole nudge philosophy is based on stuff like this you manipulate the environment to make the good things easier to do and the bad things harder and people end up behaving better yeah so on the contrary i have friends who don't want to eat junk food in the house because they'll eat it so they just don't buy it yeah they don't just keep, they just don't mm -hmm. they keep it not in the house right mm -hmm. so just seeing just seeing the junk food triggers the desire Right. So, you know, you have to be really into something to desire it when it's not around, although that can happen, too. But it's a lot easier to desire something if it's right in front of you. And then you got to use your willpower to overcome it. Uh, if you, you know, if you have to drive all the way to the store to get the snacks, it's a pain. Uh, and the idea of eating the snacks is going to cross your mind less if you just can't see them in front of you. So I guess the lesson here, and I'm all about the lessons, you know that. Here's the learning outcome. Uh, one way to <laughs> one way to hack your reward system is actually done by hacking your environment. Yeah, yeah. So if you want to watch watch less TV, you could put the remote on a different floor, mm. and then you keep the batteries in the basement, right? Oh, so then, when you're tempted to watch TV, your laziness works for you. <laughs> for once, sloth. You know? Yes. <laughs> yes. You think you think of what a pain in the ass it is to schlep around the house assembling a working remote, and then your mind starts to think, oh, maybe I should do something. Else. <laughs> yeah. It reminds me of our episode. Um, multitasking when we talked about smartphones, right? Oh, yes, the bane, the bane of concentration. Yes, yes. So you can turn your phone off and put it in another room to help you concentrate on something important, right? These are good yeah. good evidence. I think there's evidence that shows that even people are distracted just having their cell phones on. Or even actually even having it next to you is 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 enough. You, it should be enough. Um, anyway, but this all can work better than punishing yourself because you set up the environment at a time when you're not particularly interested in doing that. So you're not like when you snap, you know, you're trying to snap yourself with a rubber band. You have to do it mm. in the moment. But with these with these with these uh, environmental changes, you can do it when you're, you know, it's like, oh, tomorrow I don't want to do this. So I'm going to set it up now. And so you're sort of like mm, taking advantage of like uh, the fact that you think of your future self as a different person or something. Right. So you want to so suppose you want to watch a movie. Uh, and now you, now you watch a movie and then you feel like you're done with TV. And it's at that moment, it might be easier to move the remote to an inconvenient location to protect your future self. A remote location? <laughs> Kim, you are fired. You're fired from the podcast. All right, folks, next week you can enjoy our new co-host for Mining the Brain, uh, Him Kellemans. <laughs> You would never. Dr. Him Kellemans is great. She's like Kim Hellemans, but she's got a slightly more impressive CV and and more teaching awards, obviously. Well, let's be. We got to be realistic. <laughs> All right. All right. But let, let's let's mine some more brain. <laughs> okay. All right. Back on track. So there's no hard and fast rule about how much effort you have to put in to make something less likely to be done. Okay, but a good guideline I've read is about 20 seconds. So if you make an activity you don't want to do, require 20 seconds of effort, 
you're going to be less likely to do it. Interesting. And I think it works the other way too, right? You can make things you want to do more easier to do, right? Yeah. And that's exactly what you did with your fruit and vegetable, you know? And yeah. Google did that too. They put the healthy yeah. snacks like really easily accessible. And I did mm -hmm. it with my guitar. So guitar experts say you should keep the instrument in its case. I guess it's better for the guitar or something like that. But I found that having to drag the case out, unlock it, pull out the guitar, and then put it all back afterward was so much work that I found myself not wanting to do it. So I got this hanger on my wall uh, and now, and it's just above the couch. So now if I'm sitting on the couch and I want to play the guitar, I reach up and pull it down with one hand and, and putting it away is that easy too. So I find myself pulling it down just to do like chords or something, maybe even for 30 seconds or one minute. Hmm. There's removing friction. Yes. Removing friction. And, you know, Google, Google did that with the adding friction by putting the candy behind doors and removing friction for healthy snacks by putting lower and within. I think this is really boils down to situation modification, right? Make the things you want to do less of more expensive, more time consuming, more effortful, effortful, and make the things you want to do more of cheap, fast, easy, and more rewarding. Kim, you're rehired. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> I really want to meet this him Kellermans. Him Kellermans. <laughs> Minding the Brain is edited by Mike Contos and is brought to you by the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences and the Faculty of Science at Carleton University. If you want to support Minding the Brain, please consider leaving us a review in your podcast app of choice. If you'd like to follow us on Instagram, you can find us at Minding the Brain. Minding the Brain is currently looking for sponsors. If your company is interested, please email us at mindingthebrainpodcast at gmail.com. Theme music for Minding the Brain is Plucked by Michael Terry. More episodes and show notes available at mindingthebrainpodcast.com.